spend this year talking about living the extraordinarily blessed life, and, and we're dealing with the book of Galatians, Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit right now, and uh, spe- specifically talking about the fact that, that these fruit of the Spirit are actually the character and the nature of God that He's forming in us, and it's, and I think I understand why I couldn't speak about it before, because so many times when you hear people talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it's, you got to have love, and, and you got to have peace, and and you got to have, you know, they say it with a frown, you better get joy. And, and it's always like you're striving to get it. And we seem to forget the cause effect relationship that as we know him, he puts his character in us and we become like him. And again, just briefly, this whole thing about religion, um, I came from a spirit filled background, kind of a Pentecostal, traditional Pentecostal background. So we had three points you had to go through repent, get baptized, get filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how you got saved, right? Um, Bill Bright's Campus Crusade for Christ, it was four um, points that you went through. If you came from a Calvinistic background, it's the five point tulip plan. <laughs> I'm, I'm not making that up. I'm, and it's not a flower, that's an acronym for something else. And you have all these plans with their different programs, and then what next? It's like, okay, got that done. And basically people often sit around and wait till they die or for the rapture to come. And, you know, they're just hanging on. And that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is getting to know him. And you get metamorphosized, that is, that's what happens to a caterpillar when it moves into the cocoon, you know, that it spins for itself, and, and it, emerges, it emerges as a butterfly, and that's called metamorphosis. Well, that occurs when you get saved, but that's not the only metamorphosis that takes place. As a believer, there are ongoing metamorphoses that occur in your life as you are changed from glory to glory, faith to faith. You become more like him. And what this does is he forms his character in you. He then can release his power through you to work on your behalf. And that's what constitutes. Those two things together constitute living the extraordinarily blessed life. The character of God within us and the power of God released for us. We always want the power of God, but we oftentimes don't realize that it itself is a product of him having formed his character in our hearts. Having said that, to me personally, this has been a really, really helpful teaching series that I'm in. And you say, you mean you get something out of it? Yeah, the teacher always. I learned this years ago gets 10 times more than the student ever will because you have to study so much and so so many things I won't even bring to the pulpit that I research in my study. And we've been talking about the the nine fruit of the Spirit and now we've come to the one on love, I I mean the one on joy. We talked about love and last week I talked about joy. And so help me, the Holy Spirit won't let me leave that one right now. I'm going to spend one more Sunday on it. And last Sunday I showed you a a video, if you were here, of a guy that was on drugs as a teenager and alcohol, almost got killed, and a, a wreck. He was on a skateboard and got hit by a car that was doing, I think it was over 50 miles an hour, put in ICU weeks, and um, came out and got saved. It was a wake-up call for him. His mother said he saw the light. 
literally saw the light, got saved, and has been so filled with joy that he'd stand in the back of the church dancing, and then he'd go to the mall and think about the goodness of God, go to dancing, and, and everywhere he went, on the street, they actually have a video of him on YouTube, and I'll just say this to set up what I'm going to talk about today, and it, it's raining, and he's dancing in the rain right on the street, and people were so impressed by this guy that somebody said, why don't you go to Australia's Got Talent, and he did. What I didn't tell you last week is he made it all the way to the semifinals. And now makes his living being hired by secular companies to come in and tell their employees how to have joy. And guess what? And going to churches to tell Christians how to have joy. I know a lot of churches he needs to visit. <laughs> and to me, it's tragic that anybody would have to go to a church to teach us how to have joy when the verse I used last week was the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we've been drawing from Psalms 1, verses 1 through 4, and also Psalms 92, 13 through 15. These will be in the notes that I email out, and, and uh, if you're on the mailing list, if you're not, you ought to get on it. But at any rate, I'm not going to read those today, but I'm going to challenge you to read these two passages every day. And chapter 92 talks particularly about flourishing in the courts of our God. And the word flour, flourish literally means to blossom like a flower, grow vigorously. There's that whole thing of metamorphosizing from one state to another to another as you continue to become more like God. And it literally means to make steady progress, to boom or explode or prosper. Well, today let's look at John chapter 15, verse 11. These things Jesus said, I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. First Peter 1 and 8 Peter says, whom having not seen, talking of Christ, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Father, help our hearts to be overwhelmed with joy. I ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said Amen. So today I want to talk about flourishing because I have God's joy. Jesus said, these things I've spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you. Nehemiah said, joy of the Lord is your strength. I'll get to that in a moment. And the question I raised last week is, what is joy? Because most believers confuse it with happiness, which is related to your emotion, depending upon your circumstances. That reminded me of the verse in John 4, where Jesus said, The Father seeks such to worship him, speaking of those who worship in spirit and in truth. And the word worship there is the word proskuneo, which in Strong's Concordance, look it up online. Go to that verse, look it up. I've told you this before. The definition, I'm not adding a word to it, is to, like a dog, lick your master's hand, implying that the master just came home after a long absence. That's what that little dog was doing. That was worship right there. Based upon that definition, proskuneo, the word for worship in John 4, how many of you would agree with me 
that there's probably not a whole lot of worship going on in most churches today. Because most of us are so cool and got it together that we don't need to get that overjoyed about God. And yet one of the characteristics of God is God is filled with joy. And when you get to know him, that begins to take place in your life. Joy accomplishes several things, and I'm going to go through this. i got a lot of stuff to share with you, so I'm going to be like a machine gun this morning, just throwing it out. Joy gives meaning to our lives by itself. Without the other things, joy is a powerful force spiritually. It's our strength. But combined with other things we do in the kingdom, joy becomes an incredibly powerful force for good and for God As I've already mentioned, it's our strength. Here's a few things you need to know about God. How do we get joy? And why should we want it? I hope to answer these questions. First of all, joy is an incentive for God to act. Just as a cheerful and joyous child finds it easier to get their parents to do something for them than if they're grumpy, Grouchy, complaining, whining. Hello, parents? That really makes you want to do something for your kid. They're griping, complaining. Ah, they're like that. In the same fashion, our Heavenly Father, when we are filled with joy, is much more inclined to want to respond to our request because our joy demonstrates how pleased we are with him and what he's doing for us. Now, that lady that you saw that had been in Europe working for two years upon returning home, did you see what happened to her when that dog responded to her in that way? She's crying and laughing also, and our worship fills God's heart with joy. It's an incentive when we have joy for him to bless us Number two, joy is a strategy that confuses the enemy. I won't spend any time on these points, but the story of Jehoshaphat demonstrates that so clearly. When in the story of Jehoshaphat, Judah has this little old army, and the army of the Israel, made up of several nations, stretches out and disappears in that horizon and in this one, and God tells Jehoshaphat what to do. He says, you send the worshipers out first. That's a, it's absolutely the most stupid, from a human perspective, philosophy you can devise. What? Send worshipers out. That's an army out there. But what happened when they began to worship? People on that horizon and on that horizon couldn't see what they were worshiping about, but they could hear it. And they became confused and thought, that's, that's those Hebrews worshiping. If they're worshiping, that means they're defeating us. Oh, my God, we better get out of here while we can. Jehovah just showed up or something. And they start trying to leave and flee, but because they're made up of different nations, they're getting in one another's way, and so they start attacking each other. Get out of my way. And the whole army gets defeated by a little old group of Hebrews that went into battle rejoicing clearly confuses the enemy when we have joy instead of complaining and murmuring and grumbling. Hello, somebody. He don't know what to think of that. 
Joy is also an agent of personal healing. Story after story, study after study is revealed that the, what the Bible said is absolutely true, that laughter does good like a medicine. And people that have joy recover from wounds and surgeries faster. People that have joy go through illnesses that are severe faster, trauma, and recover from it. You're much more likely to recover from cancer if you have joy than if you're always negative and complaining. They've even written books like this. You can't afford the luxury of a negative thought if you have cancer. Amen. Fourthly, joy is attractive and appeals to others. I mean, think about it. Most Christian churches are filled with people that look like they got baptized in pickle juice. And we wonder why folk don't want to have what we have. We've got the truth. Really, if that's what it's done for you, I don't want it to mess me up. Amen. They don't, most Christians are not, are not aware that they might be horrible advertisement for Christianity. Amen. You say, but I have joy. Well, if you don't mind me saying so, let your face be aware of that. Let your face in on the secret, okay? Amen. Joy is attractive. It is the single greatest evangelistic component that exists. Not our doctrine, but our joy. Not how much scripture we know, our joy. What appeals to people most is when they see joy in our lives. And fifthly, joy is the response of a mature believer. Because you learn some things as you walk with God that you didn't know when you first started walking with him. Oh, I mean, you had it upstairs. It was in theory. You had it in the Bible. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. You know when you learn that's really true? When he doesn't leave you or forsake you. And some of us have been through some stuff we weren't supposed to survive. You ever had anybody tell you, man, I don't know how you made it through that. I didn't think you were going to make it. I didn't think you was going to survive. And look at somebody and say, but I'm still here. Amen. High five somebody and say, I've made it through everything the devil's thrown at me thus far. I don't think you realize what I'm saying. Every strategy the devil has ever devised, you've survived it. You've not only survived it, but you're here right now. Amen. And what does that do? That teaches you something about God. Tracy's sitting over here, and, and just this week, she went back for her annual checkup, and two and a half years ago, she had cancer. Stage four when they found it. And Stacy, or, or Tracy, when they, they, they outlined chemotherapy and all that other stuff, she prayed. She came to me said, Pastor, I'm not going to do that. And of course, I love Tracy and James and their family. I mean, we've been together for years and years as a team. And they mean the world to me. Many ways closer to me than my own physical family. And do you know what happened? When she told me that, my heart sank. I mean, I'm trusting God with her, but I wanted to say, Tracy, do everything. Pray, trust God, and get medical treatment, you know? Because God can heal through medicine as well. But she said, no, I'm convinced. I don't want to go through all of that stuff. And, and I said, are you sure? Because I, I, I don't advise people that way. She said, I'm sure. You know, God healed her completely without chemotherapy. Amen. And this week at MD Anderson, they gave her another clean bill of health, still no cancer, one-year checkup, still free. Amen. And she, on her way out, 
She walked by the waiting room, and Tracy told me this just after the 7.30 service, and she saw all of these people in the waiting room that were so sad, and families, and, and people waiting, and they had bad diagnoses, and they had support groups there. And she walked in, she said, she was looking for a way to share, and she just said, everybody, I want to share something with you. And she told them her testimony. And when she got through, they were clapping for what God had done in her life. Amen. Clapping. In the waiting room at MD Anderson, amen, if you've ever been there, talk about a sad place, oppressive because there's so much pain there. You know what? Joy is the response of a mature believer, somebody that's gone through something and can say, I'm a full of joy because I can tell you I've made it through some things I wasn't supposed to get through. Amen. And I'm still here serving God. I want you to notice that what Jesus is saying in these verses is you have control over whether or not you have joy. You do. Notice our text. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Five things in this verse. First, Jesus cares whether you have joy or not. He purposefully spoke to his disciples, knowing that he's only days away. He literally, at this point in Scripture, was days away from going to the cross. He knows that one of this close-knit group of 12 is going to betray. And these men have been together through thick and thin for three years. But one of them is going to turn and become a traitor. Literally, a turncoat. And it's going to go sell Jesus out. And it's going to crush the other 11. Jesus will be arrested and he knows that in a matter of days, he's going to be tortured, physically abused and assaulted, put through kangaroo court proceedings and convicted. And then executed. And he's concerned about how his disciples are going to handle it. So before it occurs, he tells them something about joy. That blesses me because God will often speak to you about things that are going to happen in the course of your life, but let you know in advance, no matter what comes, it's no, no more than a match for me. Amen. I got it handled. Don't you worry about it. And Jesus is saying, I care whether you have joy. And number two, he says, the solution to your joy is in my word. These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you. My word is what causes joy. Not your circumstance. Amen. Not your friends. Not your loved ones. Not the doctor. Not the attorney. You know what causes joy? His word. How many of you have ever had your back against the wall or been in a corner or a tight place in life and God gave you a word that changed your perspective on everything? I'm talking to somebody right now. I know it because God had me come back and deal with this again this Sunday morning. And I want to tell you his word will give you joy. Yes, it will. His word will give you joy when everything else seems to be failing. His word will give you joy. Number three, notice that he is offering us his joy. Not promising to increase our joy. Not cause us to be joyful about him. 
He said, I want to give you my joy. Most people don't think of God that way as having joy. But watch this. He does. I don't know if you know it or not. God's not happy. Happy is dependent upon circumstances. He's not happy. That is, his emotion is not affected by what's happening. He has joy. And joy persists and is maintained whether the happenings are good or not. But Jesus sends out the 70. Remember why he came. He came to restore man to the place from which he had fallen. He is the second Adam. The first Adam caused us to fall from our place of authority and power and dominion. Luke 10, 20 through 21, after the 70 were sent out two by two, they came back, and this is what was on their mind. Whoa, Jesus. Man, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And notice what Jesus said. Hey, guys, you're basing your emotion on what happened. Don't. He said, don't rejoice because the demons are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, it says, notice this carefully, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from wise and prudent, revealed them to babes and so forth. Now, that is not an accurate translation. And if you don't believe me, go online and pull it up. Where it says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. The rejoiced in spirit is a Greek word that is agaliao. Put it up there. There it is right there. And do you know what it literally, properly means? To leap for joy. Jesus said, don't rejoice because demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And then as the first Adam had fallen and the second Adam has succeeded now, he's, he's fulfilling his mission of elevating us back to a place of authority. He begins to leap for joy because he sees his disciples now demonstrating the authority and power and dominion that we were all created to experience in the garden before Adam lost it for us. In other words, God is so full of joy about you being elevated that he leaped for joy. That's who Jesus is. He's God in flesh. Oh, that slipped right by some of you. I know you're, you're, you think Jesus is like you are. You're so cool. You're not going to go to church. You're not going to and, 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 and get excited about nothing. You're Mr. Cool, right? And you're going to say you're very cultured. Amen. When you feel like it, and you're going to sit there, be so prim and proper, and respect the house of God. I want to tell you, Jesus has got more emotion than you do. Because when he saw his creation being put back in the place from which they had fallen, he leaped for joy. Amen. And that's the joy God wants to have in your heart. Amen. Number four, you will note that he uses the word may, which has to do with permission when he speaks to his disciples. I have spoken these things that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. Hmm, may. I told you that what Jesus is saying is whether you have joy or not is up to you. The word 
May, as I mentioned, is a permission word. I learned that very, very well. I'm trying to remember. It was fourth, fifth, or sixth grade. And I remember I raised my hand and said, teacher, can I go get a drink of water? And she looked at me, and I've shared this before, and she said, well, Richard, it looks like you can. You've got two legs. You've got feet. You walked into the class. You have the ability to use your hands to turn on the fountain. It looks like you can get a drink of water. I think what you meant to say is, teacher, may I get a drink of water? You have the ability. What you're really asking is, can I have permission? Amen. And what Jesus is doing here is saying, guys, I've already given you permission. Be full of joy. You don't have to wait for me. I want you to have my joy right now. And he's telling his disciples that. And then moving on from that, fifthly, he wants how much joy to be in us? He said that your joy may be full. When is something full? I looked it up in the Greek text. It means when it's so full to the brim that it cannot take any more. When you're so full of joy that like that little dog when it saw its master return. You just get so deliriously happy the joy spills over and you faint for joy. Amen. Oh, that would be a new experience for some of you in church. Amen. I'm telling you. There is a subtle insight into what Jesus is saying. He's telling his disciples, I know what you're made of. I know that as mortals you've got a problem maintaining joy. You know, everything that God offers us in the kingdom is in unlimited supply. But because of this word, may, it indicates that it's now our responsibility to maintain the joy. We don't have to worry about the grace part of it. We don't have to worry about the love part of it, the forgiveness part of it. All of that's taken care of. But I'm giving you permission to have joy. That's your responsibility now. Oh, that puts it on another footing because, you see, grace is unlimited. God's love is unlimited. His favor is unlimited. His joy is unlimited. But the latter, it's up to you how much of it you get. You all know that grace is unlimited. You know his love is unlimited, right? Amen. In a small rural community, joke. I just want to set it up. Joke. Okay? So small, in fact, that the only church in town was a small Baptist church. The pastor had to double and be vocational and be both pastor and barber in the little barber shop in town. There happened to be a man in this small community who had invested wisely. And one day, as he was looking at his portfolio, he realized he had more money now than he could spend. And he decided as he got out of bed to go into the bathroom and stare in the mirror to shave, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm a wealthy man now. I can go to the barber shop and I can pay somebody and they'll shave my face for me. So he decided he wasn't going to shave anymore. He'd go down to the barber shop. He walked into the barber shop and he found that the pastor slash barber was out making sick calls and visiting the shut-ins. The pastor's wife was there. Her name was Grace. And so he said, I usually do the shaves anyway, Grace said. So sit down, Grace said, and I'll give you a shave. So he did and she saved him and he asked how much do I owe you? And she said, that'll be $25, please. 
And the man thought, $25, boy, that's expensive. And he said, I may need to get a shave every other day instead of every day because she's already finished. I might as well go ahead and pay her this time. So he went ahead and paid her the $25. And when he woke up the next morning, his face was as smooth as when she had just gotten through shaving him. And he thought, man, maybe it was worth $25 after all. I mean, I don't have to shave today either. Third, the next day he woke up, it was still as smooth as a baby's skin. Next day, next day, he still didn't need to shave. He decided this is astonishing. He went back to the barber shop the pastor was in. He said, Pastor, he said, how is it that I got a shave four days ago and I still don't need a shave? My face is still as smooth as it was when your wife gave me the shave. And the pastor said, son, you were shaved by grace. And once shaved, always shaved. Amen. <laughs> There's plenty of grace. But you have to decide how much joy you get. The good news is lost joy can be restored as David tells us in his prayer, Psalms 51 and 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. How do you restore lost joy? First thing you need to do is get rid of the things that are robbing you of your joy. Amen. We leak like a helium balloon that you buy for a birthday or an anniversary or a gift. You leave the Walgreens or CVS or wherever it is that you bought the balloon. you got to hold on to it because if you dare let go, it's going to sail away and you'll never see it again. But by the second or third day, no problem. It's just barely hovering on the end of that string. Day after that, it's actually kind of coming down a little bit and becoming deflated and the string sagging. And before another day or two has gone by, all of the helium is gone. You and I are like that helium balloon. We get full, but we have to constantly replenish our joy. And this is what David said, restore to me the joy that I've lost. And to do that, you've got to get rid of the the things that are making you leak. And one of those is unforgiveness. And I wonder how many people in churches and right here in this church don't have joy because somebody did them wrong a long time ago and they've never been able to put it behind them. Never will forget going to Argentina to meet the great Argentine evangelist Carlos Anacondia. And he had huge miracles, unbelievable miracles that were, I mean, just astonishing. You could see right before your eyes that occurred. And I'm not talking about none of this stuff about, I'm going to make your leg grow out three-sixteenths of it. No, I'm talking about crazy stuff happening. And on national television, it was filmed. And we would meet with Carlos Anaconda after the services and have lunch with him during the day. And I asked him, Carlos, why is it so many miracles are happening? He said, because I approach it differently. He said, most people don't receive miracles of healing because they have bitterness and unforgiveness in their heart. And when we find people that have chronic illnesses, we lead them through a lifeline perspective of their life and find out who hurt them and who did them wrong. And we lead them into prayers of forgiveness where they let that go. And it sets it up where God can heal them and restore their joy. Amen. 
And some of us are praying prayers right now that are not answered because we've got unforgiveness. And then the second thing that robs us of our joy is unfulfilled expectations. Too many people make joy a destination rather than a journey. Amen. When I get this, when I have this kind of car and this kind of house and when I get this and that and the other and, and when I make this kind of money and when my business reaches this level. But you know what? You're making joy a destination, and it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be an experience you have every day. Number three, and this was the reason that David had lost his joy, living in disobedience will rob you of your joy. His failure with Bathsheba had robbed him of his joy and brought such condemnation upon him that he was miserable. Amen. And you know how self-condemnation is. You can walk into a room and two people are talking about something that you're doing that nobody knows about. And you, when you hear the details of the conversation, your face blanches and goes white. And you wonder, who told them? Who told them? Self-condemnation. Living in disobedience does that to you. It robs you of your joy. And I think of what the scripture says in Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12. In case there's somebody here, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And you know what? We're waiting on the hammer to fall. And we don't expect to be blessed. And we think we're going to be punished because most of us were raised in religions that taught punishment more, more and judgment more than they taught us joy. Amen. Even teaching fruits of the Spirit, well, you better have joy. You're displeasing God if you don't have. And everything was always about trying to be obedient. Whenever if you have joy, obedience is the natural outcome of joy. And the enemy knows that. And so like Psalm, like David prayed in that Psalms in verse 10, you need to pray, God create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Stop focusing on condemnation and just ask God to create in you a clean heart and give you joy. Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Amen. You can't be good enough anyway. Did you know that? I hate to be the one to tell you, but no matter how good you are, you're still going to mess up. And so if you allow disobedience to be the cause of the loss of your joy, it will rob you of joy. Number four, you've got to get rid of this thing about living in the past. You know, everybody always talks about the good old days, right? Do you realize that today is 10 years from now, the good old days? Do you think about that? Ten years from now, you'll look back and say, wow, those were the good old days. And you'll forget everything you went through except for, you know, the good things. Amen. We have a remarkable ability to look back at the past and find it was really wonderful. And I look back at my past, and <laughs> I'm going to tell you, one day I stopped and thought about it. And I thought about, I was raised by my grandmother. We had outdoor toilets instead of indoor plumbing. We had a well. We had to go draw water. We had to do all the chores on the farm and everything else. And I, I, those were not the good old days. These are the good old days right now. I've got indoor plumbing. I don't have to milk cows. 
I don't have to feed chickens and gather eggs. And I don't get chased by the geese on the farm like I used to. These are the good old days right now. Amen. I told you, and she was quite the disciplinarian. We had a peach tree behind the house that the whole time I was being raised never produced one peach. Not one. You know why? Because whenever I do something wrong, go get me one of them switches off that peach tree back there. Poor tree never stood a chance. After we left, it finally started growing peaches. Boy, glad to see that guy get out of here. You know, I, I can get on with my life now. You get stuck in the past. Amen. Number five, you trust in the wrong things. And we do that. We trust in science. We trust friends. We trust medicine. We trust our political party. We trust the economy. We trust in our jobs. We trust our intellect. We trust our degrees and our education. We trust our connections. Basically, we trust everything but the one we should be trusting. And he is the only one who's ever proved himself worthy of our trust anyway. I mean, some people are trusting in the whole political thing. If this is not showing you how messed up American politics is, we have a president who right now has issued an order that our schools now have to open their bathrooms to be transgender. If somebody feels they're a girl in a boy's body, they get to use the girl's locker room or they're going to hold back federal funds. And we elected that guy thinking he was a Christian. Amen. Oh, you say, you're knocking my president. I'm sorry. I just don't agree with that. Amen. I don't care if he's Republican, Democrat, or an alien from Mars. I don't agree with it. And what do we have on the horizon? Bernie Sanders used to write, get this, fantasy rape porn and sell it. I'm not making it up. Go on the internet. Hillary Clinton is being investigated for an email scandal right now after the Benghazi thing, the Whitewater thing, and all of the other stuff. And, and all, all of, oh, she, had a, she has a nonprofit organization and, and all of these speeches she was given to these Wall Street companies and Fortune 500 companies and being paid millions for and getting donations and now all of that. That's not appropriate it's not. And then we got on the other hand, Donald Trump, who's been married five times. He trumps everybody. Amen. If you're trusting in politics, you're going to have some problems. We Christians need to get a hold of God. You say, you just made me mad. This is what you do, okay? If I just made you mad, pray. You need the prayer as much as I do. Amen. Because Christians are supposed to be opposed to all of that silliness. And it's time the church be reminded we are the church. We're the salt of the earth. We're supposed to take a stand for righteousness. Amen. But people trust in the wrong thing. Psalm 118.9, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. You know what that means? You can't get to the king. He's too busy. So what you do is go to his sons. Those are princes. And so you work your agenda through the sons, the princes. And then they will go to daddy and get your agenda smiled upon. You know what God said? 
God said in the Psalms, it's better to trust in the Lord than in your connections with the higher powers in the land. You think you got the inside track. It's God who has the inside track. Amen. We suck up to the boss and all of the put up with stuff and think that's going to help us. No, what you need to do is honor God. God can change the king's heart. Do you know what the Bible said? God holds the heart of the king in his hand. And he turns it whichever direction he wants to turn it in. And if you move God, he'll move the king. I'm talking to somebody right now. I am preaching. You need to have joy in your life. Yes, you do. Overwhelming joy. And one reason we don't is because these things rob us of our joy. So how do you restore lost joy? Psalm 16, David gives us a formula. Look at it. Verses 7 through 11. To begin with, we should seek God's counsel for our lives. Psalm 16 and 7. I will bless the Lord, say it, who has given me. Say it, who has given me. Your friends will lead you wrong. God never will. Amen. There's a plan for every life. You were designed by God. And David declares it's God who gives him counsel about his life. And he said, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. What does your heart instruct you in? It instructs you in the word that you've hid in your heart, which is why you need to be in the house of God every week, getting as much word as you can. You know why? Because you're going to go through what David called the night seasons. You're going to have some night seasons in your marriage. You're going to have some night seasons in your finances. You're going to have some night seasons in your career. But whenever you are honoring God and you've got the word in your heart, God's word will give you counsel. When it's totally dark, God's word will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Amen. And you can learn to feed on the purpose that God created you for. Seek why you were created. John 4, 31 through 34. Jesus has come to Samaria. And they're all tired and hungry. He and his disciples, they've been traveling by foot. He sends them into the city to buy bread, which indicates they're hungry. And they come back. But in the meanwhile, the woman from the city has come. And John 4, bearing the pitcher, the woman that came for water at the well. And Jesus has preached to her. And she has been marvelously overwhelmed and run and brought the whole city out. Now, notice his disciples didn't bring the city out. The lady with joy brought the city out. Not the disciples, the theologians, all of those that were religious, had it all figured out. They didn't bring a living soul with them. The lady who didn't know anything about God but who had joy because she just had an encounter. She said, come see a man who told me everything ever I did. And the whole city came out to hear him. And the disciples in the meanwhile came and said, we got bread. And he said, I'm not hungry. They said, did anybody give you anything to eat while we was gone? And Jesus said, my meat is, or my food is to do the will of him that sent me. Put it up there, Robert. The next verse, my meat, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. Amen. I have food to eat that you know not of. Jesus was saying, I feed on purpose. I feed on the purpose for my life. I sought counsel. I have direction. And I'm staying the course. And let me tell you, beloved, nothing will minister to you like being in the center of the will of God. 
Seek God's counsel on everything you do. Number two, always keep your focus on God and not on circumstances. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. What did he set before him? The Lord. What did we set before us? Problems, challenges, difficulties. And what David is saying is if you want to be strong, move that off of the pedestal the center stage, and put God back in his rightful place and worship. Be like that little dog that just saw its master after two years of her being away on a job in Europe. Be so overwhelmed. Worship God. And don't, don't worry about what you look like or act like. You need to lose yourself in worship every once in a while. I'm not saying get out here and act like a fool. But at least in your private devotions, amen, you can do stuff there you can't necessarily do anywhere else. You know what I'm talking about? They might haul you off if you do some stuff you do in your private devotions in public, okay? But you can get by with it in your prayer closet, and at least you can have joy when you're worshiping with the rest of the congregation of the believers in the house of God. So keep your focus on the Lord. Number three, stop being negative. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. The Hebrew word he uses for glad is to brighten. My heart will be brightened. In other words, I'm not gonna be gloomy. Some folk that are believers one reason they don't challenge anybody to be Christians or don't appeal to anyone is they look like they just got thrown in a mud puddle and were so dry, they dried it up. Amen. I got the joy of the Lord in my heart. <laughs> Stay away from me. Whatever you got, I don't want it. Got enough problems already. Oh, but brother, this is real joy, really. Amen. Like I said, notify your face. Amen. And the word for rejoice is joy. Therefore, my heart is brightened and my glory is full of joy or is joy. My flesh also will rest in hope. What's the consequence of having joy? You can sleep. You can rest. People get stressed out over problems. They get depressed, can't sleep. And, you know, I have insomnia, have to take medicine to go to bed. In the morning, I have to take something to wake up. You know what I'm talking about? Come on, help me out here. I mean, right now, Sweden is considered in Norway are the, are the happiest nations in the world. Even President Obama referenced that just the other day. Made a statement to that effect. Those people are so happy. Well, let me tell you what you might not know about Norway and Sweden. They take so much Zoloft, they take so much Prozac that they've actually found traces of it in their lakes. For when the water is cleansed and put back into the, the watershed, it still has traces of, of Prozac in it. I'm not making that up. They take so much Prozac, even the fish are happy there. But you can be happy without all of that. You can have joy, unspeakable and full of glory. And you know what happens when you have joy? You can rest at night. 
Help me out. Amen. Do you know one of the Greek words for mourning literally means to suffer? When you're mourning, you're suffering. And what happens when you suffer? You can't sleep. You ever have surgery? Ever have a, do something that really hurt you? Injured your body? You have to go to the doctor and he'll give you a little something for pain to take the edge off so you can sleep at night. Why? Because pain keeps you awake. When you're mourning, you're suffering, you're in pain. Different kind of pain, but the effect is the same. Number four, how do you have joy? Realize your circumstances temporary. Verse 10, for you will not leave my soul in shield, King James says hell, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. This is a messianic psalms. It's called that by theologians, meaning that what David was going through was also a direct prophecy as he writes this about what the Lord would experience. But what we often forget with messianic psalms is that not only is it prophetic about Christ, it was also experiential to the person writing it. They walked through it at that moment. And David is saying, right now I'm in, I'm in Sheol, I'm in hell. You ever live in hell? Hell of circumstances, hell of a disease, hell of a troubled marriage or divorce, hell of being without a job, all kinds of, of hell that you can go through. And don't think I'm cursing, but God said, I will not leave you there, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. It was speaking prophetically of Christ being raised from the dead, but experientially, David's experience was this, that you're not going to allow this to destroy me. I need somebody to high-five somebody and say, it will not destroy me. Would you do that? I've got joy, 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 joy. Amen. And finally, number five, how do you have joy? Worship until you're in God's presence. Verse 11, you will show me the path of life, Lord. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where is the path of life? In your presence. What do you do when you lose your joy? Get back into the presence of God. That's where the joy of the Lord can be found, and that is your strength.